Welcome everyone to another episode of the Charity Charge Show. I am very excited to have as my guest today, Klaus Ellers, who is the CEO of a wonderful organization called Family Promise. We just started to work with a number of your affiliates and other organizations uh, across the country. I should give a big shout out to Rachel Hand, who is the executive director at Family Promise North Shore Boston. She had connected us had some conversations with some folks on your team and just really delighted to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Stephen. And uh, Rachel is awesome. She is, uh, we got 200 affiliates and they're all awesome, but Rachel is particularly awesome. Most definitely. And I want to get into that, but before, before we talk about your model and that's part of how I want to mm-hmm. talk about what you're tackling, um, do you mind sharing with us just overall the mission and the approach that you're taking at Family Promise? Yeah, and you know, I think um, right the place to start is that we work specifically with families uh, with children at risk of experiencing homelessness. Right, that is our population. That's our our target audience, and we do it through three ways. We provide shelter for those families in immediate crisis. We actually um, serve more people in the prevention of homelessness or the diversion of shelter and in programs that stabilize them long-term. So we really look at family homelessness. And, I, and let me just, let me dive into it a little bit because when people talk about homelessness, they tend to really lock into perceptions of what you see in the media, which typically is singles homelessness, uh, you know, somebody with a, a shopping cart or holding a sign, but families, 35% of the people in this country experiencing homelessness are members of families with children. And families are not, you know, a big neon sign saying we're homeless, right? They're working, they're, the kids are going to school, all these different dynamics. So we're looking not simply to address homelessness, but how do we eliminate that threat of instability that comes with homelessness, right? Homelessness is pretty simple. You're homeless because you don't have the uh, money to be able to afford your housing. How do we look at that holistically? And how do we take families, not just from homelessness or the risk of homelessness to being housed, but how do we make sure that they're, they're sustainable long-term and that eventually they, they separate from that poverty, from that risk? And uh, so again, we do that by preventing homelessness in the first place, providing emergency shelter when it's needed and long-term stabilization programs. And with this model with Family Promise, tell us how long has the organization been around? So uh, I'll, I'll actually go quickly into our sort of genesis story, our creation sure. Part of what I ask, I want you to, to share the history, but part of why I ask is yep. just understanding you guys. And when I had chatted with Rachel and she was sharing me about the overall mission, she touched on those um, three areas and, you know, this focus of yours on family homelessness and that statistic of 35% really is eye-opening to me. Uh, but part of why I'm asking the question is just to understand the evolution of the organization to just get smarter and more efficient at tackling the, the issue at hand here. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I'll do that kind of by doing a little bit of the of the, the whole how it got created because it sort of informs where we started and where we've gone to. Um, in 1985, this, the number one reason why the state of New Jersey was placing children in foster care was not abuse or neglect; it was because their moms had become homeless. Mm. And if you think of, and you know, you're you're probably too young to know the 1980s, but for those of us who know the I'm 1980s, an 86 baby, so. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, those who know the 80s is you didn't have family homelessness in its in its modern form until the very beginning of, of the 1980s. 
Um, and so you had no systems really to address this, right? You had this diminution of public housing, uh, all these other factors that led to this real increase in families experiencing homelessness, but you had no effective models for it. So something had to be done. And our founder um, was a marketing executive in New York. She lived in suburban New Jersey when she found out about what was happening in New Jersey. She said, we got to do something. She started organizing people. She turned to the religious community and other, other kind of civic organizations and ad hoc came up with a solution. And what it was, was utilizing space in existing um, buildings, primarily congregations to service the shelters, and then engaging the whole community as volunteers. And the beauty of that was you could keep families together. Um, they had all their needs met. Um, they were able to get pretty quickly into housing. But just as importantly, by engaging that entire community, you gave families this sense of belonging as well as giving volunteers a direct connection to an issue that they needed to understand more about. So that was sort of always in our DNA, right? We were empowering families towards success and we were doing it by engaging the community. But as time went on and as we grew, because we're an affiliate model, so that was one program. Then other communities said, hey, we could do this too. And we became a national organization in 1988 and have grown now to 200 affiliates. What over time we learned is it's all well and good to provide shelter. And we do that really well. But we can leverage those community resources. We can leverage that case management. We can leverage that innovation and that incredibly cost-effective approach to keep people in their housing in the first place so they don't become homeless. Uh, so that led to all these programs in homelessness prevention. And then on the other side, of it, when you've got all these volunteers, they've got tremendous skills. You can do financial capability training, workforce development, uh, mentoring, uh, health and wellness, you name it. And we could take that, that asset we have, those 200,000 volunteers that are involved with us nationally and use them in those long-term stabilization programming. So the evolution that we made over time was recognizing that we needed to be a holistic response, not just a shelter. Really, I really think that model makes a lot of sense. And one of the, the themes that you were talking about there is community. Certainly there's a community in all of these volunteers but through the different organizations that, that we work with at Charity Charge and you know, as I've been in this space, what seems to have been a really smart thing is providing community to the individuals that are, that are homeless and giving them some sense of personal, personal connection and support. I'm curious if you could talk about that and if you've seen anything firsthand of what providing community can do for, for some of these families and individuals. Yeah, you know, you, you think about um, you think about families experiencing homelessness, and, and can I interject? Actually, interject too. Like part of what I wanted to sort of add to this to get your your two cents on is I'm just reflecting on some other conversations I've had um, with with leaders in the in the space serving the homeless. When, when I've asked them why did they fall into homelessness, and and I want to hear your response about you'd said we really didn't have family homelessness until until the eighties, the number one thing is they said they fell into it because they didn't have community or family, you know? And so you, you just wonder like, how, why does this start in the first place? So I know I just sort of asked like 18 different questions in there, but, but take it as, as you will. And let me know what's on your mind. It's all right, Steven. I tend to give 18 different answers. So it's a good match. <laughs> um, yeah. To that point, I, I think I, I, to some degree, yes, there that, you know, families, experience homelessness, they have, you know, there, there may be some issue in the community, but the reality is they're poor. 
they have, they, they're disenfranchised. They don't have opportunity. They may actually have quite a robust community, but if everybody in community is poor as well, and then the car breaks down and you can't get to work, it's not a lot of, that, that you know, your community can do for you if they don't have the resources and assets themselves. So, uh, so I think community is incredibly important. Uh, and, and to kind of go to your original question, what we ended up finding is families come in, you know, they have tried everything they can because any parent is going to do anything they can to keep a roof over their kids' heads. So they've, they've kind of gone after one challenge after another and things have just kept not working out. So they are in a really, really desperate uh, situation, really despairing. They come into the program and what you hear families routinely say is, you know, I didn't know what we we're going to do. I didn't know if I was going to lose my kids. These people that don't even know me care about me. I had no idea so many people cared. And I think that's what you're driving at. That is so powerful, right? It is, it is it, you wouldn't think of it being transformative to be sitting in, you know, in a, in a, in a synagogue multi-purpose room or a, a church social hall or in a shelter space or whatever, playing Uno with a bunch of six-year-olds and think that's incredible empowerment. But it is because when families come into our programs, they, you know, we always say this, the kids immediately have hundreds of aunts and uncles and grandparents, right? They have this beautiful, large community that is treasuring them, that is holding them up, that is, you know, respecting their dignity and their agency and championing them. And, and that just interpersonal connection is so powerful. And then there's practical applications to that too, because, you know, you're a volunteer and you're like, wait a second, um, you know, we need an IT person in, in our company. And, you know, this dad has a background in IT using the program. So you make those kinds of connections and you see these long standing connections years afterwards. It's really about building community, which is building friendship based on respect, based on hospitality, which is really one of our core values. I love how you shared all that. And it makes me think just, I mean, this is on topic and off topic, but the power that one person and from there a community can have on another person. And I think of so many things in my life that I even remember as a child, really positive moments when a teacher said something to me that was very flattering or encouraging. I, I hold on to those things mm-hmm. and it was just really important to have that. So I can, I can t- very, very much relate and, and totally you know, agree with you on the importance of the community. Coming back a second, I'm just curious from a historical perspective, you had, you had mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, that we, that nationwide, we really didn't see home, uh, family homelessness until the eighties. What, started all of this. Yeah. I mean, you certainly had families losing their homes and so on, but you can look at this, you can track it with the evictions and other elements too. You just did not have it to the extent you had it. Um, well, I don't know. Can I make political comments on this show? Yes, whatever. We're here. It's fair we, game. We, we elected a ruling government in 1980 that uh, drastically deprioritized housing, public housing, um, and, and programs that supported opportunity. Uh, and essentially, to some degree, we sort of re- deregulated our housing market, mm-hmm. um, which meant that there were a lot fewer affordable housing options for the people who needed them. And you can see that, right? If you look at, you go back even further back, in, you know, in 1960, the, the cost of housing relative to inflation has gone up 61%, but the income has gone up 5%, mm-hmm. right? So you have all these disparities. So once you had that happening, you just created a situation where 
people who used to be able to work a job and afford housing had to spend more and more of their income on their housing to the point at which when the car breaks down, when a child is sick, when your hours change and you no longer have childcare, whatever kind of little domino it is that pushes it would just devastate everything. Um, and, and that continues to say we have a serious shortage of affordable housing. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the, the American Recovery Plan is tremendous in what it's going to do to alleviate that, but we have so many endemic systems. We just do not have enough affordable housing. So what are some of the things that you talked about, you know, kind of broadly three different areas that you focus on? What are some of the things that you, I know you talked about bringing community and when people are in, I know your model is working with different places of shelters, you're talking about like Jewish organizations, churches, um, any other sort of shelter, but coming back to that prevention piece, what are some of the things that Family Promise is doing or other models nationally you've seen that help, that help this to sort of like get ahead of it? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And um, we, so again, we work with the affiliate models. We're the national organization and we're working with our affiliates on uh, encouraging them to develop programs, giving them support for those programs and also building best practices out of that because they're, they're doing incredible work locally. So prevention involves looking at a family that is falling behind on their rent uh, and identifying, okay, you know, what, what support can keep them in their housing and keep them in their housing and create a pathway that they'll be able to stay in the housing. It doesn't make sense. If, if somebody cannot afford the rent this month and they can't afford the rent in five months, it doesn't make sense to kind of to do rental assistance. But if you can do rental assistance so the family can get out ahead and then you help them with other issues like transportation, employment, childcare, uh, whatever else it might be, uh, that gets them back out and ahead of what their rent is, that's really powerful. The other thing to, to look at is is diversion. So sometimes families are coming to us and, you know, and, and I'll give you an example from our affiliate in Indianapolis, right? So they, they were doing, they, they were starting a diversion initiative. They had a family come in. The mom had been staying with her sister. Um, and in two weeks, she was going to get her paycheck from her new job, which would be able to make her able to afford her housing. But the sister, it was becoming untenable for her to stay with the sister. So the family would have had to go into shelter. So through our case management, we worked with the family, we were able to mediate the challenges that the two sisters had so that the mom could stay there with her kids, help out a little bit with the food, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and keep that mom and her family housed for those two weeks when her paycheck came in, and then she could get her own place. So she never had to enter the shelter system. Another example was in Wyoming where there was a mom had ended up in Wyoming. She was, I don't know, from Kansas or wherever. Um, and her car was, you know, her, her tires were shot but she couldn't afford new tires. But if we could get her, her new tires, she had a housing arrangement six hours away that she could go to. That was a real simple solution that kept that family out of shelter. And sometimes it is things that are that simple. So when we talk about prevention and diversion, those are the kinds of practices we're doing. And it's critically important to have effective case managers working with the families, identifying what are the strengths, what are the family's goals, and then just helping them get on that pathway. Right, not doing for them, just helping them identify what they can do for themselves. What are the ways that you see uh, people that are? But you just mentioned those examples down on their luck, having challenges with rent or you know, car troubles, issues like that. You know, cash flow, money issues. How are they learning about Family Promise? Like, because um, I I can only imagine there's so many people out there that are struggling and and aren't aware that you exist, and and making that happen is critical for this whole model of impact to work. 
Yeah, and, and, and there's a, a kind of a COVID rider to that as well, too, that I want to mm-hmm. talk about. In, sure. in most communities, there is a centralized, so if you're, if you're behind on your rent, if you're at risk of homelessness, if you're experiencing homelessness, there's a centralized system that you can go into, and then you'll be referred to Family Promise. A lot of times, though, because we work with families with children, and because a lot of families are homeless, but they're couch surfing, they're staying with friends and, you know, and family, or they're paying for their own hotel. HUD does not consider those families homeless. They're not technically homeless, but the Department of Education does. So the Department of Education mandates that those those families are tracked. The the officers in schools will know who those families are and they will often connect them with us because that family is as homeless as a family living in their car and has the same kind of challenges and will likely end up living in their car if we don't remediate earlier on. The, The point I wanted to make about COVID is one of the things that we're seeing with COVID is a whole new group of families coming to us who had never had any contact with social services before, right? Because let me put it this way. So, so the waitress at Olive Garden, you know, she's been scrapping along. She's got three kids. A few years ago, she may have had, had need to have some various kinds of help. She might've been on TANF or whatever. Um, and then she lost her job. The manager at Olive Garden had his own house, you know, had, didn't have any of those backgrounds, but He's out of a job eventually, too. And we're starting to see more of those families that never before had engagement with social services. Mm. Not specific. I don't want to be picking on Olive Garden. It could be any restaurant. Sure. No, no worries. We love their unlimited breadsticks. So, <laughs> right. That's what they do. It's been a while since, I, since I've been to one. That's really interesting. Talk to me about the, and I do want to get, I have some questions, you know, specifically it's sort of about yourself and your journey leading this organization, but I'm finding this, this really fascinating. So I have some other questions that I, that I want to ask you related to these. So talk to us about, I mean, as you go back in the history, you're talking about how your founder, um, you know, was working in the for-profit space in, in New York, li- living in New Jersey, recognized this issue and said, you know, what can I do when you look at it today? I mean, sort of, this is sort of an education a little bit for the typical person listening that, has never run or managed a nonprofit organization. What's amazing to me is just the fact that the nonprofit sector exists in the first place, right? And is there to step in and solve a lot of challenges that government, for-profits, society is just not meeting. So can you talk to us a little bit about just your perspective? Because here's, here's what really challenges me with all of these things. I mean, I, so I live in Austin, Texas, moved here 11 years ago. I can, um, obviously I'm extremely fortunate um, just with my background and, and things that I have in my life and people I have in my life, my community, all of that. It's unbelievable. Um, everything that you're saying is so true. When you look at how much our rent, rents have increased mm-hmm. over these past, I mean, and going back, but certainly the past 11 years I've been here, obviously uh, incomes have stayed flat or only, you know, risen marginally, nowhere near that. Our a uh, homeless population has grown and grown and grown. And I just don't understand it in a town like this, where now Tesla's here and, you know, pick your day of the week, you know, someone like Elon Musk is, you know, one of the, the wealthiest people in the world. And we have other billionaires and other just extremely wealthy people. How does this still exist? And I just go, why can't we solve it? So just kind of summarizing that to you, I'd just be really curious to talk about just your opinion overall of just the nonprofit sector and like what it's there to do, how it's solving these challenges. And then why, what would it take to 
solve this issue that we have. I mean, it's just, it's just cause it really pains me to see how many homeless people there are in, in, you know, in Austin, for example. Yeah. And I'll, um, I'll, I'll share this, this data point to just make it even more depressing. So 2019, we theoretically had a thriving economy with, uh, with almost maximum employment. Uh, the Department of Education does a analysis of how many children it defines as experiencing homelessness. And it revised the statistic from one in 19 to one in 16. And that is one out of 16 children will experience homelessness in some form by the time they turn six years old, right? So that is, that is a, a market increase in, in homelessness for children. Uh, and that was pre-COVID. That was, you know, during... Sorry, can you read... What was it before? You said it was a big increase, but what was it originally? Um, it was a couple of years ago. It was one out of 19 children experienced homelessness by the time they turned six. In 2019, that was one out of 16. Okay. So if you picture a, kinder, so yeah. picture a kindergarten class. Yep. There's 16 kids in that class. Yep. On average, one of those children at some point by the time they graduate to first grade, will have experienced homelessness, maybe as an infant, maybe as a three-year-old, maybe right then there when they're in kindergarten. Yep. That is just an absolutely devastating statistic, right? It's, uh, it's, slightly, it's slightly less than one out of, whatever the right way to phrase it is, but it's like one out of six children in this country is below the poverty line. Now, I'll stop, I'll stop shouting statistics at you, but I'll do one more. One out of 25 children lives at half the poverty level that means it's a mom with two kids earning 12,000 a year. So mm -hmm. we have this dramatic wealth disparity um, and we have this perpetuation of poverty uh, because uh, it is very, you know, dis despite our myths about being able to rise up and certainly many people can, most people do not leave the quintile of poverty in which they were born in. Uh, because we have a lot of systems that perpetuate that. So, so that's all the depressing stuff. And nonprofits exist because you have these problems. I, I think that in terms of how can we solve this, right, to give us an optimistic note, I think that the American Recovery uh, Plan does a lot towards that because if you invest in children, um, you, know, you can cut child poverty significantly. And, and I'll make this point about cutting child poverty. It's the right thing to do from a moral sense but it is also economically the right thing to do because this country loses so much money, so much productivity by allowing so many children to grow up in, in poverty and then replicate that poverty as adults. It's just ridiculous fiscal policy. You don't have to give a darn about a human being. It's just not smart fiscal policy. So I think some of the things we're seeing there are really important. I think when we look at our particular area of housing, it's critical that we we think about how we address housing. We need to invest in public housing. We're going to see um, un unlimited vouchers, uh, which is great. That allows more people to be able to access housing. And even on a very local level, we need to look at things like inclusive zoning. Right? A lot of our suburbs, if you want to build a house, it better be a single family house. It's not allowed any other way. If you could actually build a quadplex, that de facto is going to be more affordable housing. And we're seeing... And, 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 and Stephen, if I'm ranting too long, you just put up your hand. Oh, no, that's great. Uh, but I want to do this rant because I think, I think we have a real opportunity with COVID, uh, with the pandemic, is for the first time people realize, yeah, there's a famous stat from the San Francisco Fed 
that around 40% of Americans cannot afford an unexpected $400 expense without borrowing money. Either they got to hawk something, they got to borrow money, or they got to put it on their credit card, but they can't just, you know, they can't just put it out of their, their existing cash. But that was always sort of an ambiguous concept. With COVID, people were suddenly recognized, wait a second, the waitress at the coffee shop, the landscaper, the hotel clerk, these are all people that have lost their jobs. And how many people were vulnerable to poverty, right? Eight million households got pushed into poverty last year. Mm-hmm. So as horrible as all that was, I do believe we've had an understanding and a reckoning about this. And you see the popularity of the measures, the stimulus measures and other measures to ensure that more people have money, which is, right, the, the solution to poverty is pretty simple, give people more money. So I think we're moving that way. I think that we may see people recognizing how untenable and how un- unproductive these disparities are um, and starting to make those actions. But we need, we need to, you know, we, we need not just the federal action. We need to figure out on a state level, how do we make more housing affordable? How do we make sure the children have childcare? How do we make sure that parents can have the education and employment? Because, you know, you're in a, you're in a technology field. Uh, everybody's in the technology field these days, right? Uh, by 2030, there's a lot of jobs that won't exist that are mostly low wage, low education jobs. So we have got to prepare our workforce for the future. And I do think we're starting to reckon with that. Talk to us about how your, you know, the ways in which the national and then your 200 affiliates are are solving this in the way that they get support. So I'm thinking about this, you know, from the, the lens of myself as an individual of what can I do? And I want people to feel empowered. And I think part of my message that I want to get out more and more to people that are listening and and those in my network is that there are so many ways that you can contribute towards this issue in this case of homelessness and family homelessness, just by contributing. In other words, you don't have to feel powerless. You don't have to feel and I, and I get those feelings too, when I drive by and I see the camps of home, like, I'm like, what's going on? And I, and I feel disempowered, but I can contribute to a family promise mm-hmm. and know that you guys are actually using those dollars and fulfilling that work. And I think that there's an opportunity here for people to really support and you guys are doing incredible work. So talk to me a little bit about how individuals um, are able to give back. Talk to me also, do you have programs where uh, corporations, businesses can get involved Walk us a little bit through that, please. Sure. So, right, we have 200,000 volunteers. So people can help in so many different ways. Making a meal, um, you know, spending a night, playing Uno with a bunch of six-year-olds. Those are some of our classic things. Congratulations, by the way. That That is phenomenal number to say. It's really, yeah. really amazing. 200,000. But then there's more than that, right? So, so that's sort of the bread and butter, and that's easy stuff to conceptualize. Obviously, people can give money, and, and you know that's really critically important. We want to see that. People, though, can also do a couple of other things. One is they can think about their skill sets. So if you've got a background in HR, you can work with families and help them with their resume. If you've mm-hmm. got a background in technology, you can help people with their technology skills. Um, you know, you can do financial capability training if you, you, you know, to help families with, uh, with budgeting and things like that. Um, you also, the other thing that's really critically important is just to spread the word and share the message because 
people do not realize the extent of family homelessness, right? That, that kindergarten example I gave you, people are shocked when they hear that, but that's coming out of the Department of Education, right? That is the federal government saying, this is how big this problem is. So sharing information about that and having people realize the extent of family homelessness then allows people to look on a local level, what are the things that we can be doing here? How do we improve transportation? You know, how do we, you know, what can we do around affordable housing and so on? So it runs the gamut. Absolutely, we would love people to, to give money. We want people to volunteer their time and they can do that virtually as well. We also don't want people to use their voice and, and, and spread the word. And then talking about corporations, uh, we have just absolutely fantastic corporate partners. Um, we have a lot of them and I'm like, if I mention them, I'm not gonna mention all of them, but sure. uh, you know, one example is Clayton Homes, which is the leading manufacturer of manufactured housing. And, and what's really neat about Clayton Homes is they've worked with us on the manufactured housing piece and, and some great you know, families have gotten uh, houses back not, not far from New Braunfels. It was the very first time that Clayton donated a home and that's wonderful. But what Clayton did, they said, we're not about our business, we're about what are solutions. So we work together with them to create the Future Begins at Home program, which is our program to promote prevention and diversion programming at all of our affiliates. So they helped create that, they helped give us the resources so we could train affiliates and give them, uh, you know, give them funds so that they could start launching more programs to prevent homelessness. And a note on preventing homelessness, typically if a family experiences homelessness, it's gonna cost anywhere from, you know, from 6,000 to $15,000. If you're able to prevent their homelessness, that might cost $1,000. Mm -hmm. So just the money basis alone is, is a tremendous argument. And our corporate partners have been terrific about recognizing that, recognizing the, the, the incredible power of our volunteers and how their support can help really magnify that impact. I love it. I really appreciate you sharing that. When you also talk about the volunteers for those listening in on this, I really like your model. I know you, you work with a lot of churches and religious organizations to serve as the, you know, in one part, the physical space. So I think that it, if people are looking to get involved, they, they may just also reach out, you know, they can reach out to their local affiliate or chapter. You can Google for Family Promise, look, go to familypromise.org. Yeah. But, but also you just have, seems to have this amazing network that you've built out of all the, uh, well, you already have the affiliate organizations. What, what do you call those partner organizations? Affiliates. We call them affiliates yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Of the churches and stuff. Wonderful. So I want to shift gears here and talk about yourself a little bit. And okay. I know we have a lot of people to listen to the podcast that are newer, uh, thinking about potentially a career change or are just young and, and really passionate and, and believe they want to work with nonprofits. In chatting with you the other week, you had shared with me that after September 11th, you were inspired to, to switch gears and join Family Promise. Can you, and then so many years later, you've now become the, the CEO replacing the founder. Can you share with me what inspired you and motivated you to decide to go into the nonprofit world? Um, yeah, uh, I was... Um... In 2001, I was working for a software startup that was uh, selling human resources solutions. Uh, and we were located in, on Prince Street in Manhattan, in Soho. Um, and I had, you know, for years before I've been working in different in, in kind of you know, cross sector of technology, human resources space, uh, and so on. I also, though, had always been teaching as an adjunct at a community college in Queens that I love. I love that job, but I didn't have my advanced degree. I kind of like I had to work a corporate job. So we, we knew with our company that we were a very attractive um, entity and we were going to be bought by a large player in the field. 
which was going to be great for the people that worked there. We were going to, you know, cash in our stock options and uh, get new jobs with the, with the big company. We had a deal on the table September 3rd of 2001. So eight days later, I was really fortunate because I was in New Jersey. My home in New Jersey I was not in New York. Um, so, you know, no tragedy that I lost my job, but everything changed. And we went from being this attractive company to being a liability because everybody thought we were going to go into recession. And the last thing people want to do is hire people. So essentially, the industry said, we're going to let your company run out of money and just buy the rights to the software. I did kind of the whole thing and flip. So I had to find another job. A friend of mine actually worked for, for a, a, a company in the space and said, I can get you a job here. And, and my wife said, your heart's not in it. You need to do what speaks to you. She said, we can make half as much money. We can get by, find something you really want to do. So I started looking around. And my thinking was, if I work for a university, I can get the tuition remission and I can go get my advanced degree and then I can become a professor. And then I stumbled across Family Promise. I barely knew the organization, but I, I sat down and I met with the founder. And when I walked out, I said, forget anything else. This is where I need to be. And there were two reasons for it. So as you said, right, we, um, you know, we work with the faith community uh, and have many different faith partners. Now, my, if, you, if you go back to my, my ancestry, my great-great-grandparents were Lutheran, Jewish, Catholic, and Muslim. So interfaith relations is why I exist, right? Yep. Um, but the other part of it is um, I had spent, I'd spent a year in foster care when I was a child. I lived in um, the six different households by the time I went to kindergarten. So I totally connected with that issue of instability for children. I knew how important it was for a community to come around you because that's what happened to me, right? A community of people came around me, supported me and my mom to make sure that we would be okay. And, 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 essentially made sure that I could have the opportunities every child deserved. That's what I think is so critically important, right? We've got to make sure that every child has the opportunities that every other child does, right? No child's future should be defined by their experience with homelessness or poverty. So those two factors told this me- This is amazing. I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> right here. I didn't realize your personal connection. Yeah. So, so I, I joined the organization I, I initially on a special project. Uh, and then a couple of years later, um, I moved into a, a different role. And um, when the founder, incredible woman, Karen Olson, just an amazing woman, when she decided to step down in 2000, at the end of 2015, uh, she recommended I take over and the board agreed. And, um, and I became the, uh, the CEO in, in 2000. So if you had told me, Steve, if you had told me in, in July of 2001, this is what my life course would have been. I would have looked at you like you had three heads. It, it, but it's amazing how it's all turned out. You know, what I want to ask you is you can look back. Um, a couple, couple of thoughts are running through my mind. First of all, thank you for, for sharing that story. I'm extremely inspired by you. It's really, it's really amazing. It's so, it's so cool where, where you're sitting today and what you're doing and your journey, where it all started. Something that really intrigues me about the family promise model is how successful you've been able to be. Success is relative, but I look at your numbers, your revenue, number of volunteers, your chapters, being able to attract great talent. And look, it's been, organization was started, was it the mid 80s or what? In 1986 was the official. 1986. So you're 
the year I was born. So you're depending on what the date you're 34 or 35 years old. Okay. Also the last time the Mets won the World Series. Okay. Good. 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 Context. Put that. Put that down in the show notes. So, with that being said, you know it's taken first of all time, 35 years to achieve this. But what I also see and partly pains me too is the challenge that a lot of these organizations have when they scale. They're started by a founder, someone that's passionate about the cause, um, maybe knows who the population is that they want to serve, but they're never able to grow in the same way that more and more I think about it, that the reason you know businesses fail. I mean, so many businesses are started every year and then aren't around a year later, two, three, five, 10, 15, whatever. So to be around 35 years really is remarkable. What do you think are some of those things that have made you successful? So, right, I'm sort of trying to ask this question in the sense of someone that's either starting a nonprofit now or maybe is three years in, five years in, et cetera. What are those things that have set up you to have all this success? And, and really, I would say durability and longevity over these 35 years. Um, yeah, and, and putting in the context of sort of what, you know, what, what's useful advice on that is, we have our core values, so we have always been defined by our core values, and we have a, a you know a, a simple duality to our mission, right? Empower families and engage the community. So that's been the lens everything has looked through, and and, and I, I put that in context because when I took over in 2016, we'd grown, we were doing all this this the shelter, we were you know we were doing a lot of programming, but we had this big focus on shelter. And we looked at that and we said, well, if we're going to grow, are we going to be able to add more affiliates, more shelter? We can, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty slow process. And there were dynamics changing between federal policy, between sort of the way that the faith community was, was evolving. That was not really a growth market. And we, we did a strategic plan and we really thought about it. How do we grow? And we recognized that it was working in that prevention space that was so critically important. So we made that pivot, but we never lost sight of those core values or that core mission, right? So yes, we're doing prevention work, but we're still doing it with a heavy case management touch, with an empowerment of families sense, and with the engagement of the community, engagement of volunteers, right? So our volunteers do a lot of work with fixing up apartments and other things that make that ability to keep family in their housing, keep landlords happy with us um, possible. So we, you have to evolve and you have to pivot but you're kind of like in basketball, you can't ever pick up that pivot foot. You can pivot, turn in different directions, but you gotta know where you're grounded as well too. And I think that that is what's critical. At the same time, you've gotta look at the future because things are constantly changing and we have an acceleration of change. Um, and you know, who anticipated COVID? Just making the point about COVID, right? We, we, we didn't, you know, nobody knew this pandemic was coming. I mean, you know, smart scientists did, but most of us didn't really think about it. Um, and when the pandemic came, Congregate shelter, right? Group shelter with a bunch of older volunteers was about the worst proposition you could have. Right. That was our bread and butter when it came to shelter. But because we had made that pivot towards prevention and diversion, not that we didn't want to do shelter or stop doing shelter, but we could very quickly move our services to what was feasible in the current climate and what was critically needed. Uh, and so I think making sure that you have that flexibility in what you do Right, so you stay stay true to your core values, but you have that flexibility, um, so that when circumstances change, and in the nonprofit world and the for-profit world, they change all the time. You can adapt to those changes. 
It's really well said. And I appreciate you sharing that. What are some of getting back to your transition when you took over as CEO? How much did the organization change? I mean, I'm sort of kind of maybe asking you a loaded question because it sounds like you had the values and there could be that, that continuity. So I'm, I'm sort of asking the question and sort of answering it for myself a little bit here, but I'm curious if perspective you could give, because based on what I've seen, there's oftentimes a lot of challenges that organizations face when the founder leaves the organization. And to me, I'm genuinely curious about what you're going to say, because it's so interesting to me of the dynamic. There's a lot of similarities of for-profits and non-profits, but one of the, the biggest things that's, that's not the same is there are no shareholders of a nonprofit, yet founders that have been around forever, they started it, blood, sweat, and tears. They probably loaned the organization money for it to get started. They're heavily invested emotionally. So I think that it could be really tough to transition out. So what are some of the things just reflecting back on what was that transition like? And what are some of the things that you think helped make it successful or challenges that you faced? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's not, not dissimilar from a family business in that sense. Mm-hmm. We do, we have, we have boards. So we do have, we, yeah, we do have uh, shareholders in a sense, but yeah, it's, it's a very different dynamic. Um, we had a very successful transition and we actually were written up in a, in a, in a journal in the field about our transition, which is complimentary uh, for how we handled awesome. it. Um, I think the key elements are um, you, you need, you need to, first of all, define a role for the founder because the founder does not disappear nor does the founder want to disappear, but the founder obviously has to shift. But at the same time, the founder has a lot of equity I and, mean, you know, it's kind of crass, but you can fundraise a heck of, heck of a lot out of the founder, right? And you can do it out of the transition. So, so you want to make sure you're clear on what that role is. And Karen, our founder was fantastic. She was very willing to be that public face in certain ways where we could leverage uh, to bring in resources. She also was very willing to be a counsel uh, giving me plenty of advice, but not, you know, not stepping in, not telling me what to do, which was incredibly valuable. And I think a- another key element is when you do a transition, there's always going to be change. There's always kind of stuff that gets calcified that needs to be shaken up. When I leave Family Promise, the person coming after me is going to say, why the heck did he do it that way? There were so much better ways. Kind of like when you're, you know, when you're getting ready to move, move, you're like, why didn't we always have that lamp on that end table that we kept knocking over when we could have put it over here, right? It's that kind of stuff. But that's just human nature. Um, so there's always going to be change. Really focus on culture first and foremost, because the, the head of an organization defines culture and culture is always going to change when there's new people. So you want to make sure that you get that alignment on culture because, you know, it's the saying, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I would say is establish a new normal. We did not do our strategic planning until over a year after the transition, because you need to you need to figure out what the new normal is before you can do that. And I think there's a tendency when there's a succession, be like, okay, let's get the strategic planning done and so on. Wait, because it's going to be more effective when you've started to figure out the new way of operating. So those would be my key pieces of advice around founder transition. Really plan it a lot. Really define those roles. Um, you know, and really focus on a kind of a shift in culture, what you're going to do there before you do anything else. Excellent. Excellent. I really appreciate you sharing all of that. I want to, um, as we sort of close this too, I want to get your take. I mean, the area that we're in charity charge is focused around, uh, helping organizations 
remove personal liability and risk from individuals, helping to try to create a, a better sense of financial stability for organizations. So as much as you've talked about here, we've, we've covered the different mission areas and the focus areas and the practical side of kind of the day-to-day. Can you talk to us your experience of the importance of just financial stability for nonprofits and just kind of the, sometimes the things that, that might seem unsexy, but, but are critical to, to the success you guys have had over 35 years? Yeah, it, 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 infrastructure is critically, critically important. When I took over and the office manager sat me down and said, okay, now you've got to basically put yourself against the credit card for the organization. I was like, what? <laughs> right, that was a, that was a, a scary moment. Um, yeah, it, it, you, you, you really want to make sure that you have very clear processes. You've got to take the time and, and, and attention to make sure that all of your finance processes and, and protocols are in place, your, your policies are up, you have consistency. Uh, a lot of that's around personnel management. You really want to be very clear, transparent, but uh, engaged. Um, and, and that was one of the things I did. Is I, just tried to, I just tried to put more consistency and regularity in everything that we did. And on the finance side, you really want to make sure that you have those multiple uh, safety checks on that. You have that visibility, uh, the transparency in everything that you're doing. Because if there's, you know, if there's any disregard or sloppiness around finances, that is just a, a death blow for an organization. Uh, and you want to keep looking at what are the tools out there that can better help you do what you do, whether it is a database software, um, whether it is communications uh, uh, systems, you know, or whether it is your models of, of financing and so on. And, and that's what I love about what you guys do, because a lot of times nonprofits are treated as sort of, um, right, the, the, the redheaded stepchild. And, and, and I've, been, I've been to conferences that are supposed to be about nonprofits put on by major institutions, and it's clearly retrofitted business talk for nonprofits. Yes. We are our own distinct sector with incredible, incredibly rich culture and excellences and best practices that are very specific to us. Yes, there's a lot of similarities. We're still businesses, we're corporations, but there's things that are distinct to nonprofits that we've really perfected, and that needs to be honored and respected. And I really appreciate what you do because you're saying there needs to be a, a financing model, right? A credit card model that makes sense in the nonprofit world, not a corporate one retrofitted for nonprofits. Said so well. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know me saying that. <laughs> well, I, I, no, I truly do. It's probably true though, right? It, well, it, it really is. Uh, it's remarkable to me. You know, there's a lot of buzzwords in the financial services space. And so there's been a lot of focus by the major card networks and MasterCard and Visa and others around going after a financial inclusion and the underbanked, right? So there's a lot of focus on, candidly, the, the population that, that you're serving directly through Family Promise, those families and individuals. And then, you know, in developing countries, people that have never had a bank account and there could be a lot of obviously advantages to getting those individuals banked and teaching them financial literacy and all those concepts. Right. But what I see first and foremost, right in front of me is the financial exclusion that happens with nonprofits and those people that are running it. And so this is just really great to, you know, be able to engage with you on the forefront. I'm excited about, you know, that we've already started to be able to work with some of your different um, affiliates at family promise, which is, which is great. 
And more and more as we do this model, I mean, I'm looking to expand it for other financing options and just other ways to really create financial products that are not predatory to those running nonprofits. So really, yeah, I'm totally there with you and just appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for being on this episode of the Charity Charge Show. Stephen, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It's great working with you. Great talking with you. Keep up the terrific work. And, uh, you know, when you uh, when you release your album, definitely uh, send me a link. I want to listen to it. You got it. Now, for everyone that was listening, I know we talked about it a little bit before, but this is uh, organization's Family Promise, familypromise.org. Klaus, thank you so much for being with us today. You betcha. Thank you, Stephen.